Our children are going to go out to the back for Children's Church. There are folks out there to, t- to go with you, so we hope you have a good hour. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege it is now to come and open your word and let your word speak to us. You are already speaking to us today through the songs that we have been singing to you. And we thank you that the longer we do know you and love you and serve you, we understand more and more just how wonderful your love is. And so thank you for that privilege to have a relationship with you. And we pray, Lord, if there's someone here who does not yet have a relationship with you, they've heard a lot about you, and they have seen others who have used the name Christian, both good and bad, and we pray, Lord, if they need to give their life to you, that they'll see in this hour, in these moments, just how wonderful you are, how much you love them. Give them the courage and the willingness to just open their heart and to put their trust completely in you. We pray for our children in Children's Church and those who lead them. And we pray that the seeds of the gospel that are being planted will, will bring forth fruit in your time. Use this time now and use your word as you always do. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter We're returning to our verse-by-verse journey through the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see verses 12 to 17 today uh, with the title, This Little Light of Mine, meaning you have light in your life. If you're a Christian, the light of Jesus lives in you. And God has a plan for demonstrating to this world that He is real that he is present, and that he has the power to change the lives of people. And this plan of revealing his love and mercy and grace to the world is is you. It's me. He calls us to go into all the world and to share who he is and to make disciples and to lead people to put their trust in him just as we have done. He seeks to convince this world. The Holy Spirit is at work to convince the world through his word and through your life and mine. And so we see in this passage how Paul, on the heels of having talked about what Jesus did for us, that he came from heaven to earth and emptied himself of all of what it meant to be on the throne of glory. He humbled himself even to the death of the cross, with that as our shining example before us, he's calling us to let our light, the light of Jesus in us, to let that light shine. Look at Philippians 2, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, now the word therefore is always there for a reason, right? Whenever you see therefore, it points back. And so it points back to this great passage that we looked at a few weeks ago of how Christ emptied himself and became sin for us and went to the cross, even the death of the cross, and that God has now highly exalted him. And now we are the bearers of that name and the carriers of that light. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, 
but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, or some translations say without murmuring, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, it is true God has given this world the truth of his heart in the, in the scripture, the pages of of the Bible. He inspired it to be written so that his word would be here for all the world to see what the truth is. But it's also true there are a lot of people who won't pick the Bible up and read it. And perhaps the only way they ever will know what the word of God says is they first must experience the word of God in your life and my life. And in, in encountering us, and encountering the love of God in, in our lives, they then become open to what God would say to them through the pages of his word. And so in a sense, we live the word of God. God lives through us so that his word then can penetrate into the hearts and minds of people. Isn't that how you became a Christian? We could, we could go through this auditorium and let people give a testimony about how they became a Christian, but generally there's some person, it may be a, a mother or it may be a mom and a dad, it might be a grandmother, it might have been a Sunday school teacher, but somebody touched your life personally. Their life touched your life and you became open then to the Word of God, or that person shared the Word of God with you, and you eventually came to the place where you gave your heart to Jesus. Now, that's not always true. Once in a while, there's somebody without, it, without any other influence from another person. They pick up a Bible, and they read it, and God changes their life. They come to faith. That, he can do that, too. He's not limited in how he can reach people, but he usually uses somebody to open the door in a person's life and then they come to faith as they experience the love of Christ through a person's life and then as they see it on the pages of God's Word. God wants to use your life. God wants to use my life. And he uses, Paul uses this image here to demonstrate that in this world that he calls crooked and depraved, you see, the Bible doesn't say the world is getting better and better. The Bible doesn't say that human nature is getting better and better as time goes by. That's the philosophy of this world. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. We are all sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory 
of God. And that's why we need the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We need to be covered by His blood and His sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven. And so the Bible describes this world as a crooked and perverse generation. I think that would still be a good description of the world that we live in. It was in the first century. It was in the days of Noah. It was in the days of Moses. It's still that way. And it always will be. Because this is a fallen world. And every human being is a sinner. Every single one of us. We, if we live long enough, if we live to the age of accountability, we will sin. Every single one of us. And we need the forgiveness of God. But, Paul says, in the midst of that crooked and perverse generation, every generation, Christians shine as light in the darkness. This is the image that we should always uh, go out into the world with every day when we get up. Whether the sun is shining brightly or not, it's a dark world. People are lost without Jesus. But there are light. There is light. You are light. And every person who knows Jesus, you are light in the darkness. And someday when Jesus returns, he's going to light up this world, isn't he? All that will remain for eternity is Jesus and those who love him for all of eternity, experiencing all of what it means to have eternal life. It reminds us of what Jesus said in the great uh, sermon that he preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. He, he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. Like a city that's set up on a hill. I remember when I first went to Louisville, Kentucky to seminary. And I would make that drive back and forth from Bolivar, Missouri to, to Louisville uh, when I'd have a chance to come home, which wasn't that often, but once in a while. I would usually leave later than I intended to. And so I'd get to Louisville well after dark. And these were the days of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Do you remember those days? Boy, I made it a long trip. And driving across southern Illinois and southern Indiana, there's just nothing out there. There's not much there. And so you're, you're thinking, gosh, I could go 95 on this road and nobody would ever know the difference. But you don't do that, right? Nobody, no Christian would ever drive over 55 on the 55 speed limit. But I can remember in the darkness, it was so dark all the way across those, those areas where there just wasn't any towns, there was no light. And then I'd go, you'd come around a curve and start down a hill, and you'd be looking across the Ohio River, and there would be the city of Louisville, and it was just all lit up. And it always made you feel good to see the light, the light shining in the darkness. That's what your life is like in this world. You're a city set on a hill. You can't hide that much light. And that's what we are to be in this dark world. When people encounter your life, they ought to be surprised at the way you treat them, the way you care for people, 
the love in your heart. There should be something different about you and me when people encounter us. And I know that you experience that. You've probably had people say something to you about that. Uh, that's what happens when you're a Christian. Because when you encounter someone who's lost, and then you treat them the way Christ would treat them, many times they're shocked. They're not used to it. They don't quite know what to think about it. In fact, it can be disorienting to them. That's the light, the light of Christ shining through your life. That's the point Jesus was making. And so never forget this image that you and I, every believer in Christ, we are light, points of light in a very dark world. And thankfully, because of Jesus, it's not utterly dark. And that's the thing about people who despise the name of Jesus They've never lived in a world that is completely dark because the light of Christ is here. The light of God is here. And it always will be until the end of the age. And so the, the light, we are the light because Christ lives in us. And then there's this statement that he makes in verse 12 that has caused such great consternation, has been so misinterpreted. Uh, it is there in the end of verse 12. But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. People will take that little phrase and build their entire theology on that, their whole theology of salvation. And they will say, see here, this proves that we have to save ourselves. We have to, we're out here on our own. We have to work out our salvation. We have to figure it out for ourselves. We have to do our thing and we have to make ourselves acceptable to God. Well, does it really say that? It doesn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. It says work out your salvation. Let your salvation be manifested in the course of your daily living. Paul is saying be faithful to God. These are people who are already saved. And he is telling them, let your salvation shine in this world. Grow and mature in your faith. Because notice verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Not you working, working it yourself. Not you saving yourself. This is actually teaching the opposite of a works theology. It is saying that as a Christian... You need to let your light shine. And so work out your salvation. Let it, hold it forth. Let people see the light and power and majesty of Christ who lives in you. And so we are to give full attention to our lives so that our lives really will shine in this wicked world. And God is the one who is at work in us and always will be at work in us to bring us to faith and then to use our lives as a shining light of his power and his grace. So how do we do that? He then talks here about three, three areas. He talks about our attitude. Verses 12 to 14. We've read 12 and 13. Verse 14, he starts off with our attitude. Do all things 
without complaining and disputing, without murmuring and arguing, without murmuring and, and fighting, without murmuring and disputing. He calls attention to our attitude first. And doesn't everything pretty much begin with that, our mind? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then we saw what the mind of Christ was, that he was willing to humble himself. He was willing to do whatever it took for us to come to faith in him. Let this mind, that mind, the mind of Christ be in you. And so the mind of Christ is not selfish. The mind of Christ does not put personal needs first. The mind of Christ puts the will of God first. The mind of Christ is submissive to the purpose and the plan of God. Do all things without complaining. The the word complaining here has a rich Old Testament background. It's the word that's appropriately translated in older versions as murmuring, which you just say the word and it kind of describes what's going on. And we all know what murmuring is, kind of that, that low, dull roar that's kind of under the table. People are grumbling and not happy about things. For those of us familiar with the Old Testament, this word can, can conjure up some very bad images. The first time the word appears in the Bible is right after the people of Israel had celebrated their mighty deliverance from the Red Sea. When the Lord brought them out of Egypt, they had sung, they had celebrated because of what the Lord did for them. But the next step on the journey took them to Marah or Marah, and the water was bitter there. And what did they do when the water was bitter? They murmured, they complained. Exodus 15, 24. So the people grumbled, now catch this, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Now that sounds like us, doesn't it? It sounds like human beings. They didn't like the way the water tasted. What are we supposed to drink? They just had been brought miraculously. They saw all the plagues that God brought on Egypt they had been, they'd crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They saw how God destroyed the army of Pharaoh. And when the water didn't taste the way they liked, it had too much fluoride in it. When the water didn't taste the way they wanted, here they are grumbling against Moses. What are we supposed, are we supposed to drink water that tastes like this? God met that need. By showing Moses how to sweeten the water by putting a tree into the water. God miraculously took care of that. It was no big deal for God. But a few days later, they encountered another crisis. The food supply begins to be used up. And what do they do when there's a food shortage? They grumbled. They murmured. They complained. They said, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Who were they grumbling against? It says Moses and Aaron. But who are they really grumbling against? God. God. It wasn't Moses and Aaron who were supplying water and food to them. God was supplying the water and the food for them. And so when they were complaining against Moses and Aaron, they were actually grumbling against God himself. 
The Lord met their needs in this crisis. Exodus 16, 7 says, Moses said to the people, He has heard your grumblings against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? So you see, their grumbling against Moses and Aaron was really the grumbling against God. Because it was God who supplied the needs that they had. And despite all of the miraculous supply of God in their life to bring them to that place, they couldn't trust God from day to day for water and for food. Folks, we must not be like that. Too often we are like that. And we need to remember that our grumbling and our complaining, we may direct it at individual people, but when we grumble and complain endlessly about the circumstances of life, we're really grumbling and complaining against God himself. And he is worthy of more than that. He is worthy of more than that. And that begins to obscure our light. It keeps our light from shining forth. And there's never a better opportunity for your light to shine than when you are in a difficult place. When circumstances are hard, people will watch to see how do you deal with that? How do you react to that? And when we react with bitterness and grumbling and complaining, people don't see the light of Christ in us. So we need to let our light shine. And Paul is saying to these Christians, do all things without complaining, without murmuring, and without disputing. And I think really just like the complaining was against God, actually, when we get angry, it may be directed at somebody. You know, it's just like something happens at work. Or something happens at school, it makes you mad, what do you do? You go home and you take it out on somebody who didn't have anything to do with it. And sometimes that's what we do. We're angry, we're upset, we don't like the way things are about something in our life, and we take it out on the first person we encounter. Sometimes we do that at church. Many of the things that happen in churches have nothing to do with what's going on at the church. It's because people are miserable where they work, They're miserable at home. They're miserable in their life in general. And they come to church. They take it out on everybody there. It's always been that way. And ultimately, what is it really against? It's against God, too. It's against God. If we're Christians, our light needs to shine, especially in the hard circumstances of life. We need an attitude adjustment. We need to do all things without complaint. Or to put it positively, we ought to do everything with joy and with gratitude. That's what Paul tried to model for these Christians. And so, let's help one another. Let's do all things without murmuring and complaining. And let's instead say, God, how can you use my life? What can I do to be a blessing to someone else? And if there's something that is falling short, if there's something that needs to be done about a a matter, say, Lord, how can you use me to make it better? Let God use your life. Be light in every circumstance that you find yourself. 
And then also our conduct. Verse 15, he says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. So there's three words he uses, three things he says there. Blameless, harmless, without fault. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our conduct here should be, he says, blameless. The, the, the terms Paul uses here are, again, in comparison to the wicked and perverse generation, the world that is in darkness, the depraved world. We are to be blameless, meaning we are to walk by the standard that Christ has set. Now, can any of us 100% be perfectly blameless as long as we live in this world? No, I don't believe so. I think we continue as Christians to fall short. But we're saved by the grace of God. We're kept by the grace of God. But it ought to be our greatest aim that we want to be like Jesus. And our conduct should be blameless. That should be the goal that we reach for. That people, when they see us, they don't see us being just like everybody else in the world. And it's not that we want to lift ourselves up and say, look how wonderful I am. We want people to see how wonderful Jesus is. The power of Christ in our lives. That we live by His standard, not by the standard of this world. And the word pure here, or blameless, uh, uh, or harmless. The word harmless here means pure, which means simple or sincere. In other words, be a real person. Be a genuine person. Don't, tr don't be a phony. Don't just try to be a holier-than-thou person. You know, you put on this, this great act and you make people think, oh, how wonderful he is, or oh, how wonderful she is. Be real. Be genuine. Christ in you. Let people see Christ. The goal is not for people to see us and how wonderful we are, because we're not. The goal is to let people see Jesus and how wonderful he is. And if there's anything good in us, it's the goodness of Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ living through us. And the word, he says, without fault, without fault. It comes from the priestly vocabulary of the Bible, which means without blemish. It actually harkens back to the sacrifices that would be examined to make sure they were not blemished in some way physically before they could be used as a, an acceptable sacrifice. Our lives as sacrifices, we are living sacrifices for Christ. And we ought to be like those animals that were examined to see if they were without blemish. We ought to be without blemish as we are laying our lives down for the name and for the cause of Christ. People should see the love and mercy and the kindness and the goodness of Christ in us and through us. As one writer has said, they ought to notice that we respond in love and mercy like God. They ought to notice that we are quick to forgive just like our Heavenly Father. They ought to notice that we keep our word just like He keeps His word. They ought to hear the same kindness in our voice that they would hear in the voice 
of the Lord Jesus himself. They should be able to take notice that we are free from the prejudice of the world, just like our Heavenly Father. This is the way we shine in the darkness. This will convince them that God is worth considering. Blameless, harmless, without blemish. And so this is why it matters how we live our life. Because we're not, we're, we don't want to obscure the light of Christ. We don't want to do anything to get in the way of people being able to zero in and focus on the presence of Christ in us so that they are drawn to the name of Jesus. And then finally, our testimony, verses 16 and 17. He says, holding fast to the word of life. Now, it's, this is translated two different ways. It could be translated either way. Holding fast, which gives the image of hanging on to the word of God. Hanging on to the word of life. I think that's true. But it, it is also translated in some of your translations, holding forth. Holding forth the word of life. In other words, holding it out. Holding it up so that others will hear and know the truth of the Word of God. I think both are true, aren't they? If we hold fast to the Word of life, Jesus is the living Word, and He's given us the written Word. If we hold fast, if we hold on to the truth of God's Word, then we're going to be more liable to want to hold it forth so that others will know what it is. That they'll not only see it, and experience it in us, they'll actually hear it. They'll come to know what God's Word has to say and what Jesus, the living Word, has done for them. And so this is our testimony, to hold up, to hold on, to hold forth the Word of life, which is an expression for the gospel, the good news, and all that the Bible has to say, that people can have eternal life through Jesus Christ and that their life really does matter and that God wants to use their life in a wonderful way. So we hold on to the Word of God and we hold out the Word of God. We hold forth the Word of God so that people can come to know Jesus. I read the story of a young skeptic who began to attend church. The pastor reached out to him, offered him wise arguments as to why he should become a Christian. And then the pastor preached a series of sermons on the proofs of the Christian faith, and he did it with that young man in mind. And finally, after several months, that young skeptic came forward and made his own profession of faith in Jesus. And as the pastor talked to this young man, he asked him, which truth was it that convinced you? And led you to faith. And the young man was surprised by the pastor's question. He was a little bit, he was a little bit sheepish, and he said, Well, Pastor, I'm sorry, it wasn't your preaching that led me to faith. It was my mother. It was my mother's life. I finally came to the place that I could not deny the reality of God in her life. I saw Jesus. In her. This little light of mine. 
Now that doesn't, uh, you know, I'm a preacher. It doesn't mean that preaching is not good. But you know what? There's nothing more powerful than the presence of God in a person's life. So do not underestimate how important your light is. It's so important. Before we uh, pray, I want us to sing this little light of mine, a cappella. I think we can do that, okay? I'm going to test your memory and see if you remember this song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let your light shine. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we thank you so much that you came into this world of darkness and brought the light. You are the light. And we're thankful, Lord, that you didn't leave us in darkness, in sin, in death. You brought light and life to us. And we're so grateful that you will come into each of our lives and your light living in us will shine through us. Lord, help us to do what Paul urged that early church to do, to not get in the way, to not obscure the light in any way. And so, Lord, if there are things in our lives right now that have been getting in the way of your light shining through us, help us to confess those to you right now and walk out of here ready to let our light shine for you, your light shining through us. Lord, if there are other decisions that need to be made here today, publicly or privately, whatever your will is, we want your will to be done. You lead us now and help us to follow you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.